0: All right, good morning. Everybody doing okay? Yep. Appreciate that. That's great. You got one doing well. Everybody else is like happy they survived the four-degree wind chills. Man, um, I'm I'm so uh, excited about what God's doing because, uh, like right now, um, Billy, who's our lead pastor, is in uh, the Dominican because the church there that we have been involved in for this last season and will continue to be involved in for hopefully a long partnership, um, they are launching right now, today, uh, as a church, and so love that Billy is there, Joey, who's a part of our church, and Joey kind of leads uh, a little bit of our efforts specifically in that region, and they're, they're down there launching today, and, uh, and they'll be flying back uh, later on today, but just, just excited we get to be a part of that, you're a part of that, and so um, be praying for them throughout today uh, as that church launches, and uh, the hope there is, is they'll be... Just like hopefully we are here, right? A city on a hill in a place where people need the gospel. And so just be praying for them. If you've got a Bible, go to Romans chapter 12, Romans 12. And if you don't have a Bible with you, uh, copy the scriptures or that app's not opening on your phone or whatever it may be, uh, there's a Bible on the ends of the rows. Um, if you're using that Bible, it'll be page 552. If you don't have that Bible, I cannot tell you the page number. I don't know. Um, Romans 12 is where we began the series uh, back uh, now four weeks ago. We started in Romans 12, talking about worshiping God, and today we're going to go back into Romans 12, and we're going to land the plane on this whole series, uh, Rhythms of Growth. By the way, I'm Dustin Willis. Uh, I get to serve here as an elder, um, and uh, it's a joy to be a part of it. Within this series, we've worked through three primary values that we have as a church family, and I'm going to do exactly what Billy has done throughout this series. I'm going to draw these up here for you um, and kind of tell you what, what... These are all about. So we worship God. We serve our city. And lastly, we love our world. That's why we're in the DR right now. And what we've talked about is right here, when we begin to do all three of these things, what happens here is what I would call transformation. We start to see God move through the power of the Holy Spirit to transform us and shape us and to move us to be more like him, like walking in these ways, walking in the way of Jesus. And if you notice, maybe even when you walked in physically, and if you're watching online, I can explain this to you. When you walk into our building here in the lobby, on the left, just past the coffee bar, on the left are three canvas pictures. And if you look at those closely, there's even some words written on each one. Each one of those pictures represents three ideas. Worship God, serve our city, and love our world. That's why there's three there. That's why there's three messages there. That's why it's three different pictures to represent those values. But intentionally, right when you walk through the doors, it is impossible for you to miss it. There's one word That's made up by all of those three values, if you go and look at it closely, and it's huge when you walk into our lobby, and it's the word together. So here's the idea. That's not just haphazard. We were like, yeah, we need something on this wall. It's really big. What should we put? Um, There was no doubt what we wanted to put. We wanted to put the word together. We wanted to put, when we have the space for those three canvas pictures, we wanted to put three pictures that represented to love God, to worship God, to serve our city, to love our world. And so, but we intentionally know that those three things should not happen in isolation. They should happen in community. They should happen together. And so, what I want to challenge us with as we kind of walk and land in the end of this series is there's an altogether, another circle that surrounds these. And it's the circle of community. We are designed to do and live out these three values within that circle, the circle of community. All of this, worshiping God, serving our city, loving our world, they're intended to take place within that circle that we call community. The intent is that these rhythms are not practiced in isolation. God created us for relationships. He created us Four relationships. That could be a whole sermon. I don't have time to go into that, but you can look from the beginning of Genesis to Revelation. God created us to live in community one with one another. An isolated faith really isn't a Christian faith. Like, oh, it's just me and Jesus. That. That's not a biblical faith. God's called us to do it with one another. And it's the grace of God, right, that takes a lot of people who are totally different and binds us together in a really unique way. We're all different, right? Like, some of you cheer for Georgia. Some of you cheer for Texas. Some of you cheer for Oklahoma. Some of you cheer, I don't know how many Oklahoma fans we have here, just throwing that one out there. Um, Some of you cheer for Clemson, this guy. Some of you cheer for Florida. Some of you cheer for Georgia while your husband cheers for Florida. I don't know how you pulled that off, or he, I don't know how that works in y'all's household. Uh, some of you, you put the toilet paper, um, and when people go to grab it, it's on the other side towards the wall, and then there's the rest of us who are right, um, right? And, and then others of you, you squeeze the toothpaste from the middle. That's odd. You should start at the bottom and work up. Um, some of you have recently, in the last couple of years, you've chosen the Popeye chicken sandwich over the Chick-fil-A chicken sandwich, and that's completely weird, and you should confess today and come to the Lord. Um, Some of you are Republicans. Some of you are Democrats. Some of you are like, I vote for the candidate. Either way, whatever, wherever you are in all of that. Some of you are older. Some of you are younger. Some of you are really tall. Some of you are very average height. Some of you are really short. It doesn't matter. Like, the gospel binds us all different together. Like, our community is unique, and we are bound not by Uh, the color of our skin or the food that we eat or the team that we cheer for. I love how Dietrich Bonhoeffer said it. He said it this way. He said, our community, our community with one another consists solely in what Christ has done in both of us or for both of us. We, We as a church are called to this. We are called to love one another no matter the cost. Community is us living out these values while we walk through, and if you've been around here for a little while, you'll hear it 100,000 times, as we walk through the good, the bad, and the ugly of life with one another, while we remind one another of the good news, the gospel. I need you. We need one another. We need this type of community. But but I want to make sure that we understand something about this circle. We live these values out, yes, as a community, but truly, there actually is another circle. And that circle will exist over here. That circle is called the world. I don't know if you've ever seen, if you're into M. Night Shyamalan, if you're not, I'm not suggesting that you have to, but uh, in the movie The Village, I won't give the whole thing away, but some people prefer the village mentality. We're not called to live in our own little village. We are called to live this out while we exist in this. And in this, oftentimes what we see is we might see a different set of circles, and it might be worship, self. Self. Right? Or not serve our city, but serve who? Serve self. And it might not be the idea of loving our world, but oftentimes what we'll see is divide (laughs) the world. This is often what we see in cultural formation, is these ideas. And so there's two contrasting ideas sitting beside one another. Because within the idea of worship ourselves, it might be a uh, bigger house, climb the ladder, me versus the world, us versus them. Or serve ourselves might be the idea of, you know what, I deserve better. Me before you. That's my parking spot, right? Y'all know the awkward moment you pull in the spot like, and there's that person and you're like, is it me, is it you? If we're, if we're gonna be this one, it's just maybe just go, it's you, right? But the tendency is, is no, that's my parking spot and I will prove to you why it is. The serve ourselves is, you know, at the end of the day, just do whatever makes you happy. By the way, that's not a biblical term, by the way, but it's one that you will hear often, and often it makes its way into the church. Or this idea of divide our world, right? This is where we find hate. This is where we find crime. This is even where we see war. This is the place where politics has become the religion of our day. Divide our world. But what does this passage, Romans 12, tell us? I mean, the passage we started with this series in, and one of the first verses that we taught were verses one and two, right? Romans 12, two says this. Do not be conformed to this world. It says do not be conformed to it, but be what? Transformed. Where does transformation take place? It takes place with the power of the Holy Spirit, but it takes place right here at the intersection of where we love our God, we, where we love our world, where we worship God, and we serve our city. At that intersection, but within the context of what? Community. I quoted Dietrich Bonhoeffer just a few minutes ago. And uh, I, want, I want to take you back in history for just a second to help paint a picture of what we must be fighting for. As a community. The year was uh, 1933, um, and this took place uh, in a place called um, Finkenwald. Now, if you're German or even Polish, that's probably not how you pronounce it. I went to Google, and I don't know if you've ever Googled how do you pronounce this. I got about 17 different pronunciations. (laughs) So I'm going with Finkenwald uh, based on it being the most uh, common one. Uh, Hitler was leading uh, the Nazi regime at this time in history. And it tells us, history tells us that he had approximately 13, listen, 13.6 million Nazi soldiers at this time who were seeking to do what? To divide, to conquer, to bring pain, and to ultimately create a world, if you will, for themselves. While simultaneously this is going on, there's a man by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who started a small, very, very small underground seminary where he would build a small community of believers that all met, and listen, they all lived in the same house. Like, when I say seminary, you're thinking big university campus. No, 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 it was a house hidden in the hills. It was an underground seminary. And one author tells it this way. I just want to read this to you really quickly. So people are kind of blown away by what Bonhoeffer's doing, and so they show up, and, um, and I'll just read it to you. It says, one, infram- one friend in particular, a young historian named Wilhelm Niesel, who had heard Bonhoeffer lecture in 1933, came up from Berlin to visit, being suspicious of what Bonhoeffer was doing. Here's what It says, Uh, Bonhoeffer took him out on a boat. They rowed across from this house across a small uh, lake. And when the two rowers reached the shore, Bonhoeffer led Niesel up a small hill to a clearing from which they could see the distance, a vast field, and the runaways of nearby squadron. German fighter planes were taking off and landing. Soldiers moved hurriedly, In purposeful patterns, like so many ants, that's the way this was described in this historical book, Bonhoeffer spoke of a new generation of Germans in training whose disciplines were formed for a kingdom of hardness and cruelty. It would be necessary, he explained, to propose a superior discipline if the Nazis were to be defeated. You have to be stronger than these tormentors that you find everywhere today. That's the quote from the book, and then it goes on to just say this. It says the. This image is one that haunted me and drew me to the banks after a sleepless night of driving. Bonhoeffer, a pastor with unflinching loyalty to the cross, standing as a prophetic sign to the world on the side of a river overlooking, here they are, on the side of this river overlooking a mass amount of Nazi soldiers. And on the other side, and so I want to explain this, here stands Bonhoeffer on this hill and on one side. On this side of the hill is an altogether different world being created by a Nazi regime. Hundreds, thousands of soldiers, planes taking off, planes landing. And then over on this side, he points to his friend, to this little tiny house where they're studying the scriptures. And he makes this strong statement that has just been ringing true in my life since I kind of discovered this story a couple of years ago. And he said... As he looked at the small little house on one side of the hill, he said, this must be stronger than that. This must be stronger than that. So I just want to say, this must be stronger than that. So... If that's going to be the case, then it doesn't mean comfortable Christianity, show up, do your thing, feel comfortable, feel good. I don't like everybody in my community group. I'll try this one. I don't like everybody over here, so I'll try this new church. Or I don't know if I really want people to confront me in this. I'll try this thing. No. This must be stronger than that. Community transformation must be stronger than cultural formation. Conforming is not acceptable, but transforming must become our norm. This must be stronger than that. But I want to be clear about something. We may be called to not be of that world, but I want to make sure of something really clearly. We are sent to it. So I'm not saying let's create this alternate community that lives over here but never, ever ever interacts with the rest of the world. Oh, no, this community is called to be right in the middle of that world. This becomes like a city on a hill that cannot be hidden for a dark and broken world. Though we are not of the world, God has strategically at this time placed us in this world. And so Romans 12... Paul is writing this instructional letter that, listen to me, deep in theology, especially if you go chapters 1 through 11, it just establishes this incredible foundation of theology, but extremely, as you turn the corner at chapter 12, where he says, therefore, so after all of this, 1 through 11, therefore, what we'll find is practical, extremely practical in application, and in What would happen is a local community of believers would receive this letter, this letter called Romans, they would receive it, open it, read it aloud together and contemplate how do we do this thing together? What is God saying here? Like what are we going to do about it and how are we going to do it together? And so as we end this series, I want us to set before us very, very, very practical rhythms of community. We've been talking about rhythms of growth. Specifically today, I want us to talk about rhythms of community. So let me just say this before we read this passage. I very much am, if if you've been around here for a little while, when I teach, I tend to teach a couple of verses or like one verse and I just break it apart. That's kind of my style. Billy and I talk about often because Billy will take like a whole passage, teach it, and it's fantastic. I take like one verse and break it apart. That's just kind of a difference of how we teach. But nonetheless, we both teach from the scripture. We don't go to the scripture and go, hmm, I wonder if this will fit what I'm saying. I wonder if this will fit. We just, that's the passage we're at, we read it. So I do want to tell you something. I'm taking a page out of Billy's book and it could go bad. Because think about it, I tend to teach one verse, and I'll talk for 40 minutes about that verse. Billy will take a whole passage and teach for 40 minutes, so I don't know what's going to happen when I teach a whole passage. Um, so what I'm getting ready to tell you is this, I'm getting ready to give you nine points. I'm being serious. A lot of people are like, ha, that's funny, it's only three. Um, by the way, that's not a thing, you don't have to do three, uh, unless you're at a Baptist church, then um, you have to. I'm doing nine today, okay? Dead serious. Going through nine, I'm going to move quickly. Uh, this goes against, I'm in marketing. I, I take people's long things in, like, that they write and make them really short, concise, and punchy. Um, I'm doing the opposite of everything I've ever wanted to do. Um, but this is where the Lord led me, and this is where we're here. So you're going to get nine sermons from me in about the next 19 minutes. Does that sound good? All right, you're like, that sounds terrible. All right, here we go. Uh, let's pick up verse nine. We're just going verses nine through 13, so I couldn't do like too big of a passage Um, So verse nine, and we'll read the whole thing, and then I'm gonna go through it. Love must be sincere. Again, stop for here. Imagine we're opening up a letter, we're reading it together, we're contemplating, how do we live this out among this? What does that look like, all right? So love must be sincere, hate what is evil, cling to what is good, be devoted to one another in love, honor one another above yourselves, Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Now, I am not sure that there is a better summation of how to live in community than that right there. Like, we can talk about theories of why you need community because let me just tell you, you do. Like one of the most non-Christian statements you can make, no, this is just my burden to bear. No, it's not. No, it is not your burden to bear. We bear these together. Bear one another's burdens. Like we're called to do this together. And I think this right here could be as practical as possible on how we begin to do that. This passage, these just few verses, it is rich, it is practical, but I wanna tell you, it is possible. And when we live these out, it is attractive to a lost and hurting world. It's attractive. I mean, if we were to live that out, our small ragtag, we're just a few years old, church, I think we could actually be attractive to a hurting world. So let's talk about it. Rhythms of community. The first one comes from verse nine. I'll highlight it in the passage. Love must be sincere. Love must be sincere. So if you're a person that takes notes and you were thinking you had enough space in your journal. Well, there's nine points. Here's the first one. I got really creative with how this is gonna work. Love sincerely, all right? Number one, love sincerely. I promise you, I'm in marketing. That's real sticky, all right? Love sincerely. So this is about being honest. Let's just talk for a minute. This is about being honest. This And this works two ways. This is giving love and this is receiving love. Because if we're doing this in community, then there's... Two counterparts here, being able to love sincerely and being able to receive love sincerely. That phrase, love must be sincere. The Greek word there for that phrase is anapocritos. The idea of ani is against. Kritos is the same, think, think of the word crit, like hypocrite. That's where we get that word. So what that phrase means is this, to love and be loved without hypocrisy. Love in such a way that you are not hypocritical. The idea of hypocrisy back in these days, back in the theater days was this. They would bring out a mask. Y'all seen these theater masks before? Some are smiling, some are frowning. They would bring these masks out and they wouldn't have to act it out on their face. They would just put the mask on and that mask represented the emotion they were feeling for whatever play that they were acting out. So what does that mean? It means we have to love one another without putting a fake mask on that shows we're happy, shows we're sad. There is no veneer, there is no facade. It's loving one another without the mask on. And and, and I'll say this, like for me in my own life, I know there was about an eight year span where honestly I was wearing a mask, and this is not like COVID mask, okay? So let's move beyond that, please. this is like, for like eight years of my life, I wore a mask. And, and not to mix illustrations here, but, but that mask felt like a prison. I, I had, to, and, and, and here's the crazy thing I remember talking to Billy about this. I had the key to get out of the prison the whole time, the whole time. And what I want to tell you is this, for you, because some of you have that mask on, it feels like a prison. God will bring what is in the dark to the light, whether we bring it to the light ourselves or not. And I have experienced that in my own life in a very real way. Whether it's your sin or your fakeness, uh, us being caught in it. Let me just say this, it's not the wrath of God, that's the grace of God. And, there, and there's one thing I can say about that. In the in, in the light, where there are no masks allowed, there is so much freedom. And that can be tough because for some of you, um, let me just say this, it's, it's time for you to allow people to love you for who you really are. You maybe you've been wearing that proverbial mask for a while and I was talking to my son about this the other day, he's in middle school and he was just, middle school brings all kind of new weird things, right, with friends and he's just talking about how, I don't know if I can act that way in front of this person or this person. I was just saying, hey son, if you act a way that you think is gonna just impress them, but it's not who you are, and they begin to like that. Think about it, man. That's a sad situation. He's like, what do you mean? I was like, they're liking something that's not even you. Like, be you. And then, of course, he was like, yes, that's what I'll do, Dad. No, it didn't go that way. Um, but it takes time. But I think sometimes even us in this room as adults, like, we kind of tend to act a certain way to whoever it is because, and that's not sincere, need to be who we are, who God's called us to be, because you need to know something. Ephesians 2 says you are God's workmanship, like you're his artwork. He's created you, crafted you exactly how you are. So you know what this community needs? You. We need one another sincerely. And let me just say this, the act of wearing a mask, I've been there and done that, it can be extremely exhausting. And some of you, you're exhausted today. But but picture this, imagine a community, imagine a church, imagine a small group where people are loved for who they are and who Jesus is making them to be. We have to be sincere about who we are with one another. So number one is love sincerity. Look back at verse nine. Look back at verse nine. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. So I got real creative with this one as well. Number two, hate what is evil. Hate what is evil. Now, to make sure I point this out because some of you were looking for this verse uh, for a while now, it does not say hate who is evil, okay? You're hoping, praying. I have many times been hoping and praying for that. No, it's hate what is evil. Let me just say it this way. If you truly love someone, then you hate everything that hurts them. If you truly love someone, then you hate everything that hurts them. And by the way, this is the only place in the scripture that this form of the word hate is used, and it is the most intense form of the word hatred we see in the entire Bible. Hate what is evil. So in the context of that circle that is called community, what does this mean? It means you can't love someone well and not truly hate the things that hurt them. Now, where do we get this idea from? I think we get this idea from God himself. I think that's how our God is and how he has been, and that is his history story. We don't serve serve and follow a tolerant God. Our God hates sin. He hates it. Why? Because he's loving. His hatred was so intense that he took it And he didn't put it on you, he didn't put it on me, he didn't put it on this community, he put it on himself. So how does that translate to walking in community, being in a small group with people? A sign of us being a a gospel-centered community is us hating what is evil, hating the things that hurt others, being loving enough to say something, to do something about it. I ask, is this happening within small group, within your community of people? I, I, I'm, I'm too often not willing to do whatever it takes to walk with my community in this way. I think sometimes I, it's easier because I'm like, man, I, I don't know if I want to point that out to them because I really'd like for them to like me. <laughs> Yet I see that there's something that's killing them, that's hurting them. Um, I'll give you this quick illustration. Uh, my daughter Piper was about two years old. She's 10 now. We were out in the front yard of our house and she was playing in the driveway. My wife and I were probably about 30 yards away. Um, we had a swing at that time. It's since rotted and fallen out of the tree. Um, but we were sitting in the swing and she's over playing in the driveway. And uh, again, two years old, two year two-year-olds pick things up, right? And it was really shiny, and she picked it up. What a two-year-old do with things that they pick up that are shiny typically? They put it in their mouth. And so there we are, 30 yards away. She's picking up this really nice, shiny object, and she's going to put it in her mouth. Now, in this moment, let's just imagine, this is a real story, but let's just imagine this how it goes. This part's not exactly right. My wife and I look at one another and go, ooh, that looks like a bad idea. Yeah, I think that's a bad idea. And then I look at my wife and go, well, why don't you go tell her to stop? And she looks at me and goes, yeah, but I want us to be like besties one day, and I just think that might offend her. And I'm like, yeah, but I'm not going to do it because like, she's my little princess. I don't tell my princess no. If she wants the little shiny object, let's let her have the little shiny object. My wife's like, we can't do that. She can't have the little shiny object, but I really want her to be my best friend. You want her to be your princess. And let's be honest, it, we're going to hurt her feelings, and that's going to be bad, and she's going to be upset at us. And like, this is going to cause scars for years, and uh, we're going to be dealing with this for a long time. Meanwhile, she's taking the shiny object and putting it in her mouth. Now, the good news is we didn't do that. We did see the shiny object in there. Now, if we would have sat there and done all that, does that make us really good parents or really bad parents? We're like, no, oh, let's let her learn the lesson hone her on. It makes us terrible parents. We don't know what the shiny object is she's putting in her mouth. Good parents do what? It's like a dead sprint. Like, we are on our way. Like, Rainy's really fast, but man, I got her. I'm going to beat her to the line. Like, and, I, and I'm there, and I, and I did. We both took off, and I did beat her to the line. And and then I was sore for like three days. Um, and, and I, I knocked my, my daughter's hand. I literally slapped her hand because she was just like going for it. And whatever it was, it barely nicked her lip. There was a little tiny piece of blood, and we saw the, the little shiny object go flying, and we go and look to see what it is. And she's crying, and she's mad. She's all ticked off, and we pick up the shiny object, and you know what it was? A piece of glass. A very sharp piece of glass. Now, my point is this. There are people within our community that they're getting ready to pick up a shiny piece of glass. It looks good to them, but you know it's going to hurt them. Does it make us a good Christian to go, "Ah, you know what, I really want them to be my friend for a long time? Or do we do whatever it takes, even if they get mad at us for a moment, to stop them from what might kill them? I just want to throw that out there as just maybe a picture of what it means to hate what is evil. Because in that moment, I hated that glass. Does that make sense? Imagine a community where people care enough for one another that they're willing to say the hard things. This type of community, I think, really reflects a God who loves us deeply because he hated the things that hurt us so much that he took it on himself. So number two is hate what is evil. All right, we gotta keep moving. Verse nine, love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. So, got creative with this one as well. Number three, cling to... To the good. Cling to the good. That word cling there is uh, the Greek words kola. It's the same place, uh, root word that we get the word glue. Glue yourself to what is good. Fasten yourself to what is good. What does the word good here mean? Let I me mean, I just challenge you with this. How do we interpret Scripture? You interpret Scripture with Scripture. So you go find that form of the word good. You'll find yourselves in Mark chapter 10, verse 18, where it says, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God. Alone. So this good is talking about the good of God, the goodness of God. So as a community, we are called to cling to the good work of God. And again, in the context of community of how this is written, how we see it in others. So cling to what is good in others. So let me just make this point really quickly. In other words, we need to have a culture of daily encouragement, as Hebrews tells us, as long as it's called the day. And encouragement isn't, I love those shoes, oh, that's great, nice socks, like whatever. It's not that, it's I see God doing this in you. Like I see the work of God, I see his hand, his grace on your life as you do this. It's pointing that out in one another, creating a culture of encouragement, clinging to the good that you see God's hand on one another. So not only are we pointing out the hard things sometimes, also pointing out where we see God transforming people cling to the good. All right, back to the passage. Honor one another above yourselves. So number four, honor one another. That means you are willing to suffer for someone else's gain. You value them more than you value yourself. This is very opposite of what the world would tell us most often. You're willing to do the tough job. It means when you arrive here on a Sunday, unless you're a guest, park far away. Park as far away as possible in order to give someone the better parking spot. Walk 27 more feet in the cold. It's not like we have a parking lot where it's like, you know, section A, B, 12. You know what I mean? In your small group, why don't you host it sometime when maybe when it's not working out for everybody else in the group. You just go, hey, I got it. It's not convenient for you. It's not a good week for you. It's, but you're just willing to take it on sometimes, even if it's not convenient. It, the idea of this passage is I would rather suffer in your place so that you don't have to. Like, this is the gospel, right? Suffering so that someone else doesn't have to. That's what Jesus did for us. When we do this, when we honor one another in this way, we're living out the gospel in a very practical way. And by the way, that word honor in that passage is a military term. It's the idea of this. Like, if you go in a military base, a private is going to salute very quickly the general. Right? What this passage means is this, treat everyone as if though they are the general. Somebody gave me advice when I first started working in the professional world and they said this, and I think it applies here a little bit. They said, hey, treat everybody like they're your boss, even if they're not. I was like, why? Now, this guy wasn't like giving me Christian advice. He just was saying, I was like, why? He's like, because one day they might be. (laughs) Like, that is good. And I've tried to do that ever since. Honor. Treat everyone like they're the general. No one is in a low position. Everyone is in the position of honor. Imagine being a part of a community that does that. There must be a culture present where it's not about what I can get, but it's more about what I can give to you. It's about serving one another. When Rainey and I got married, somebody gave us a gift, and it was one of those little serving trays. You just put stuff on, and you take it to somebody for like breakfast in bed, or uh, and it also had a little stand you could do, and it's like a, uh, you could sit and eat in front of the TV, but they only gave us one, and I thought that was really odd. So I asked the lady, I was like, you only gave us one. There's uh, two of us. She's like, I know. I did that intentionally. I want to see which, I want to challenge you to see which one of you can serve the other one with that one more. What does that look like in your small group? How does that look for you to serve one another, to honor in that way, to treat everyone like they are the general? Verse Verse 11. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. So number five is do something now. Do something now. Never be lacking in zeal. Let me explain what that means. That means do not be stagnant. That's literally what that passage means. My dad has had, I don't know, nine back surgeries. He'll actually be here today in the second service. He's had like nine back surgeries. Every time after he has those, I mean, he's just, his back's killing him. He did construction his whole life, tough job. And After surgery, if he just sits there, I can just tell you what happens. It only gets worse, right? Atrophy sets in. I think sometimes in community, we can just kind of get comfortable and we can kind of just sit and not do, not serve and not love together. And I think sometimes we experience spiritual atrophy. Maybe you even feel this in your own life. Oftentimes people, I don't feel like I'm growing in my faith. Yes, allow the grace of God to pour down on you. Sometimes we do need to pause and sit and pause and be before the Lord. But sometimes I, I'm not really growing. what are you doing? <laughs> because you might have atrophy and you need to go move. And every time my dad would get up from the bed and actually go walk. We, we grew up on a small like farm, and so he would just go walk the exterior of the land. And after he'd do that, he'd be tired, but he'd be like, starting to feel better. Do something now. Keep your spiritual fervor. That means be active. This is not a time in history, by the way, that we can be spiritually lazy. All right. Back to the passage. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction. Number six, patient in affliction. Patient in affliction. Let me just quickly say this. Here's what we know. In this world, we're going to have trouble. Period. This, this, this isn't, this right here, doing this, I don't want to make this sound like easy street because it's not especially doing this inside of this. Pretty difficult. Here's what Tim Keller says. He says, suffering is everywhere. It's unavoidable, and its scope often overwhelms. No matter what precautions we take, no matter how well we have worked to be healthy, wealthy, comfortable with friends and family and successful with our career, something will inevitably ruin it. No amount of money, power, and planning can prevent bereavement, dire illness, relationship betrayal, financial disaster, or a host of other troubles from entering your life. Human life is fatally fragile and subject to forces beyond our power to manage. Life is tragic. So we must learn to walk with one another in that. I love how our church, by the way, let me just say, I love how we do this one. I think this one right here, patient and affliction, I think we're really good at that. When cancer shows up in our church, man, there's nobody looking for a meal. (laughs) Like, we're on it. When COVID shows up, like, it's like, wow, you just dropped all of CBS's vitamins right in front of my house. Like, th- like those things happen. This is it. We, I mean, do you know that in the next couple of weeks, there's a funeral that's taking place of somebody that's not even in, like, they're a part of our church family. They're not even a believer yet, but they come and they're a part and they show up and, and they have a situation with a funeral of someone of their family members. Do you know we're helping we, you, us as a church? We're paying, helping pay Not not a ton, but much as we could do in that moment, pay for their funeral. We're patient with one another in affliction. And somebody should say this, community isn't easy, and we're going to walk through some stuff together. And what often happens is, is when stuff shows up, and I'm talking about stuff, I'm talking about these afflictions, it's easier to go, you know what, I'm out. No, 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 stick in. Because when we do that, that's when we become really bright as a city on a hill in a dark world. I love how Francis Schaeffer says it. He says this, he says, our relationship with each other is the criterion the world uses to judge whether our message is truthful. In other words, this must be stronger than that. Back to the passage. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. So number seven, meet needs. I basically just illustrated that one. Meet needs. Are we generous with what we've been given? We must live with our hands open. I'm not saying, by the way, meet needs doesn't mean like don't go make money, don't have a good job. Absolutely. Just don't hold it all right here. Hold it right here. See the difference? Make a bunch of money, hold it right here. No, I talked to a group of 14 college students the other night who are engineering majors, marketing majors, and I was like, you guys should become Just become filthy rich. And they're like, whoa, I've never heard a preacher say this. I was like, you become filthy rich. And then hold every bit of it right here and watch God transform the world. I mean, we have to have an Acts 2 type of mindset. You know what they did in Acts 2? When they didn't have what they needed to meet needs, they sold their possessions. It was a small group once uh, that it was a college small group. And, I, and I, know, I know this group. It was a part of the church I was in. And there was a girl in their group that she lived further out, international student. She needed a car. They were all having to pick her up. They finally, you know what they did? They got all their Lululemon stuff and everything else, and they sold it online, and they bought her a car. Literally, Acts 2.45 taking place. Because then you get to Acts chapter 4, verse 32, and what it says, it says, no one's in need. I want us to be that type of place. That we would live a Luke 12, kind of life which says sell your possessions and give to those in need. And I love it. So not only should we hold our possessions like this, we should hold our homes this way too. Look at verse 13, part B. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Number eight, practice hospitality. Hospitality is not so much about hosting as it is offering what you have And what the majority of us have is a home in which we live and the table at which we eat. That is what we can offer. Let me tell you what hospitality is. It's important to the gospel. It breaks down walls. It shatters barriers that may be there. It starts friendship and it displays care. Hospitality, by the way, is the same place that we get the word hospital. Because as you open your home, God will use that environment to heal the brokenness in others. I've seen it too many times. Our homes can no longer be a place of just refuge. They must be a tool to display the gospel. And then lastly, I left this one out. It was right in the middle of that whole passage. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction. And I'll end with number nine faithful in prayer. Faithful in prayer. The other night, we had a family night here at the church, and Billy mentioned this story. Charles Spurgeon was, they were experiencing uh, great success. Um, and uh, as they were experiencing this great success in London, England, he started this church, 10,000 people coming to the church. He—he um, he, By the way, he started pastoring that church at the age of 20. Seat 6,000 people. They're running two services. He pastored that church for 31 years, and All these people come and go, what's the secret here? What is the secret? And he'd take those people down to the basement of the church and he'd point and show them where, and the detail actually points out this way. So I think it's like page 13 of, of, uh, I remember weird numbers. It's page 13 of Spurgeon's book on prayer. There's 700 people on their face before God um, just praying for what was happening up above in the service that day. And uh, Spurgeon looked at these young guys and was like, that's the powerhouse. That's the secret. So if we really are going to be a people who worship God, serve our city, and love our world, and do it within the context that God's designed it for, which is in community, we must be a people who plead for God to move. We can't pretend we got this figured out on our own. We must plead for God to move through what Spurgeon called the powerhouse secret which is prayer because we got to have it if this is going to be stronger than that let me just say if you're not in a small group you're not in that um, and we really think uh, that God moves in incredible ways in this church like this service is great But the lifeblood and what happens in our church really happens in those small groups. And so the rhythms are this number one, love sincerely, hate what is evil, cling to the good, honor one another, do something now, be patient in affliction, meet needs, open your home, practice hospitality, and lastly, be faithful in prayer. And when we do this out of a gospel, Holy Spirit driven motivation, God will actually use this community as a form of mission to that world. Why do we know that? Because Jesus said it, John thirteen thirty five. All men will know you are my disciples. So all these people know your disciples by the way you love one another.